0: Well, if you've been with us at all at Summerfest, our theme all summer here, at least the last four weeks, has been on the gospel. And uh, the gospel, of course, is the good news of the Lord Jesus Christ. That is our theme. We began me- week one with uh, a message by Mike Fabares on God, namely that He's holy, He's just, He's righteous, He's the Creator. And as such, he has the right to rule. Then the next week, Steve Leston, my friend, came in from Chicago and talked about the doctrine of man or what we sometimes call the doctrine of sin, that though the gospel be glorious, our sin gets in the way and blocks us from that relationship. So we talked about man's sin, how we've all sinned. And Steve was so clear out of the book of Genesis there. Then the third week, we looked at Christ's righteous life, Kent Dresdo came. We talked about how he never sinned, that he kept the law, that he kept the law perfectly, that he himself was sinless, and based on his righteous life, that be part of the gospel. And then last week, right here, uh, my friend Chris Mueller came and just did a wonderful job on the, the death of Christ, and what that accomplished, that he shed his blood for us to take the wrath of God. And tonight, just as we continue in that, I want to look tonight at the, the, the doctrine of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. I mean, I think all of us would understand that if it was only his death, if he only died on the cross, that's not the complete, full gospel. He had to have victory over the grave, victory over death, victory over sin, victory over the guilt of sin by his resurrection from the grave. I mean, it's, it's very simple. There is no good news apart from the resurrection. But because of the resurrection, we have wonderful hope and joy. Here's my my focus tonight. I just want to do three things with you, okay? And I might be turning fast. Maybe you can jot the reference down. I'm not going to be in one particular passage. But let me tell you the direction I want to go. And then let me tell you the point that I'd like to make. I'd like to, number one, just show you the doctrinal importance or the teaching of the resurrection. Why is this doctrine so important? And we'll look a little bit at church history on that. Then just secondly, I want to look at the biblical affirmations from the Word of God on what the Bible says about the resurrection. Then thirdly, I want to look at kind of just a crucial declaration about the resurrection and your response to it, okay? There's so many ways to go on this. There's so many ways to, you know, you could preach on the theme of the resurrection for weeks. Obviously, volumes have been on it, been written on it. But let me just set that direction tonight. The doctrinal importance, the biblical affirmations, and then just a crucial declaration from the resurrection that demands a response from you. But first, just the doctrinal importance. I mean, how important is, is the doctrine of the resurrection. I mean, I think we understand that. Apart from the resurrection, there is no gospel. But let me bring some church history and some authors into this just to set the table. Michael Green, a theologian, said this. He said, Christianity does not hold the resurrection to be one among many tenets of belief. Green said, without faith in the resurrection... There would be no Christianity at all," he said. "The Christian Church would have never even begin begun. The Jesus movement would have fizzled out like a damp squid with his execution," Green said. "That Christianity stands or falls with the truth of the resurrection. Once disprove it, you have disposed of Christianity." End of quote. It's very well said. I mean, if you can't get this doctrine right, then there is no gospel. There's a historian, maybe one of the more well-known historians. His name is Philip Schaff. And if you go into someone's library, you might see he has a big eight-volume series, if you will, on the history of the Christian church. Schaff said this. He said the resurrection of Christ is emphatically a test question which depends the truth or the falsehood of the Christian religion. He went on to say that it is either the greatest miracle or the greatest delusion which history records, end of quote. And he'll go on, of course, to say that it was the greatest miracle. I mean, this doctrine is just so vital. Wilbur Smith, the famous Bible teacher, said the resurrection of Christ is the very citadel of the Christian faith. He said, if this goes, so must everything else that is vital and unique in the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. I think well said. I mean, if you, if you can't get an agreement and belief on this, then the whole gospel goes out the door. One even by the name of John Locke, who was a British philosopher, speaking of the Savior's resurrection, said is truly of great importance to Christianity, so great that his life or his being or not being the Messiah stands or falls with it. He said so that these two important articles are inseparable and in effect make one, believe one and you believe both, deny one and you can't believe neither. This this doctrine is so crucial for us. William Phelps, of, who was a Yale distinguished professor, said, quote, in the whole story of Jesus Christ, I like how he said this, the most important event is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. I mean, there's many important things, but that might be in his mind the most important. So when you think of the gospel and the good news first, There's the doctrinal importance that is so vital to our belief. But secondly, let me just take you to the biblical affirmations in the scripture. Some of these you will well know, okay? And maybe this is just encouragement. But if you're here tonight and you're a guest with us and you've been around Christ, but you're not sure who he is, this really gets to the crux of the issue. What are the biblical affirmations that we find in the Word of God. Now, you can look at this a couple of different ways. In the book of 1 Corinthians, in chapter 15, the resurrected Lord Jesus Christ was seen by over 500 people. But you can look at it a little bit more closely, that in the New Testament, there are 17 eyewitness appearances to different individuals. I mean, you have statements all over the Gospels like this. It says in Matthew 28, 17, and there it's referring to the 11 apostles, death, resurrection. Here's what they said. When they saw him, they worshiped him. So you have an affirmation in Matthew 28, 17, that those 11 minus Judas, when they saw him, they worshiped him. They were an eyewitness to the physical, literal, bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ from the grave. Of course, you remember most likely in Luke 24, specifically verse 31, where it spoke there of the two disciples who were on the road to Emmaus. And there was the resurrected Christ walking with them, but veiling, if you will, his identity from them, And then it says this in 24, 31 of Luke, their eyes were opened and they recognized him. And so you have these eyewitness accounts from the New Testament here in the Gospels that they recognized him. Later in the book of Luke, in Luke 24, there the 10 apostles were gathered, minus Judas, and you might remember at that point, minus Thomas, But he he just suddenly appeared in the room in Luke 24 and Jesus said to them, see my hands and my feet that it is I myself touch me, he said, and see for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. Imagine being there in that room in Luke 24 when he said, see my hands and see my feet and that it is I myself, and then he said, touch me, and they came over and felt that, and it's my belief, along with many others, that we will encounter the physical, resurrected Jesus Christ, obviously, in the glory of heaven, and we will forever be a witness to the nails in his hands and in his feet, but you have this testimony in the gospels, In John chapter 20, verse 18, it says that Mary Magdalene came, announcing to the disciples, quote, that I have seen the Lord. Over and over in the New Testament and here in the Gospels, there is this eyewitness account of them and their sight of the Lord Jesus Christ. In John chapter 20, another event with the apostles, it says that he showed them both his hands and his side. And then it says the disciples rejoiced when they saw the Lord. I mean, you just can't get around the eyewitness account of what writer after writer and person after person said. In fact, you remember in John chapter 20, when Thomas was there now with the other apostles And the disciples were saying to him, we have seen the Lord. Remember what Thomas said? He said, unless I see his hands and the imprint of his nails and put my finger into the place of the nails and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. That's why we call him Doubting Thomas. But then the scripture is so clear in John chapter 20. It says eight days later, Jesus comes through the door and says to Thomas, reach here your finger and see my hands and reach here your hand and put it into my side. And he said, be not unbelieving, but believing. I mean, this is the testimony, Grace Church, of the apostles In the Gospels, it's a clear testimony. Now, throughout history, there have been theories to disprove the resurrection. And maybe some of you have studied those. There's about six that seem to make their way through pieces of church history. But I'll just share one of them. In other words, if you got this affirmation, there's people who try to debunk this. And one of them is called... The swoon theory. Have you heard about this one? The swoon theory. And those who hold to the swoon theory believe that Christ never died. And why it gets that name is he just kind of swooned, if you will, on the cross. He really wasn't dead. The Muslims today believe in the swoon theory, okay? In fact, some even Muslims don't even believe that Jesus was on the cross. I think I've shared that with you before when I was in that taxi cab and I was telling him about the Lord Jesus Christ many years ago. He told me that that was not Christ on the cross. Have You ever heard that? You've got three up on the hill, three at Golgotha. And he said that that was not Christ. I said, who was it? And they said it was an imposter. And so there's many Muslims who don't even believe that it was Christ on the cross, but others believe, not just the Muslims, that in this swoon theory. And and by the way, it's interesting when you look at the Quran, and the Quran does not affirm the resurrection of Christ. The Quran was written in the seventh century. So you have to understand you're getting an eyewitness account from the scripture of what these people encountered, the Quran was written in the 7th century. But the swoon theory claims that Jesus went into a coma because of the shock from a loss of blood and the trauma that his body endured on the cross. That he was removed from the cross, he was laid in the tomb, and then they would say that the aroma of the spices... And the coolness of the tomb supposedly revived him. It was then asserted that he somewhere came out of the grave, fooling the disciples that he had been resurrected. Of course, they don't call that a resurrection, they call that a resuscitation, if you will. However, the, all the records in the scripture are emphatic that Jesus, in fact, died. You have the women's testimony in the Gospels. You have the testimony of Joseph of Arimathea who took the body, if you will. You have the testimony of Nicodemus. They all knew he was dead. In fact, those women and even Joseph carefully wrapped his body in linen and they anointed him. In fact, we would believe that historically, when they would anoint that body and put spices and linen, that there would be as much as 70 pounds of spices to anoint his body for death. And you would think one preparing him for death would understand that he, in fact, did not swoon, if you will, but that he was dead. But in addition to that, you have the Roman soldiers who were expert executioners I mean, in some ways, that was their business. They killed people. It would be like telling somebody who's a Navy SEAL, somebody's not dead. I don't think so. I think those guys would know when someone was dead or not dead. And so here, these Roman soldiers were expert executioners. In fact, in the Gospels, as you know, they did not break Jesus' legs because it was obvious that he was dead when they rammed the spear into his side and blood and water came out, they knew for certain that he was dead. I mean, think about it this way, Grace Church. If the swoon theory is to be believed, think about it this way. Jesus would have had to survive an utter severe beating and torture with a great loss of blood. He would have to go through a crucifixion which would result in further loss of blood. And then he would have to have a kind of a mortal spear stuck into his side. He then would have had to survive the entombment with over 70 pounds of spices packed around his tortured body. He then would have to survive three days without food and water. He then would have to wake up, move a stone, walk out of the tomb, and then once outside, he would have had to overpower the entire Roman guard, then walk seven miles on the road to Emmaus with feet that had been pierced with nails. I just, we don't think so, right? Not at all. The scriptures declare... That he rose from the dead. And you have these many appearances in the Gospels that, as I mentioned, that they record the literal, physical, bodily return of the Lord Jesus Christ from the grave. But that's not all. You don't just have the Gospels. You've got the story that continues. As Brent talked about the story of his family, and he finds himself in that story. It's not just in the Gospels. When you open your Bible and you go to the book of Acts, it is the story of the apostles' proclamation of the resurrection. Now, do you just have statements like this. Acts 2.24, it was not possible for him to be held in death's power. It's impossible. Stated in Scripture, preached to those. In fact, it was Peter in Acts 2.32 who adamantly said, this Jesus, he's preaching, God raised up and, and he says of that we are all witnesses. He's, he's preaching that. So you've got the doctrinal importance, you've got the biblical affirmations. In fact, Peter again in Acts 3.15 said, you killed to the Jewish people the author of life, whom God raised from the dead, he said to this, we are all witnesses. In fact, you go over to the book of Acts, in Acts chapter 10, it says that God raised him, the apostles said, on the third day and made him to appear, not to all people, but to us who have been chosen by God as witnesses who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. So listen, the, the resurrection of Christ from the dead is the central proclamation of the early church. But that's not all. It's not just in the Gospels. It's not just in the book of Acts. But as you carry on into the New Testament, all of the apostles or the epistles were convinced that Jesus rose from the grave and that he died and then he rose again and that it changed their lives. Paul speaking in Romans 6, 4 said that Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father. I mean, I I think you can begin to see you're either going to say these guys are lying or it's the truth. And not only did they state it, but they saw him. One of the credentials of the apostle was you had to see the resurrected Lord Jesus Christ. Turn in your Bible just for a moment. Look over to 1 Corinthians. There's that grand statement there. Just... Turn there, First Corinthians, if you brought your scripture tonight. In First Corinthians, Paul is talking there. And what's the language in this wonderful text, this wonderful chapter on the resurrection of Christ? But in First Corinthians 1, he says, I remind you, brothers, and here's our theme, of the gospel that I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand. He's going to give them the gospel that was received by them in which they stand. You know, it's kind of encouraging, Brent, just hearing your testimony. Both sets of your, your, your parents and, Colleen, your parents, that was their message. They believed it. They walked it. They've given it to you. You've given it to your kids. You're giving it to your kids. But this is what Paul's saying. He says, I want to remind you of something he, he says, I've given you this gospel. He says in verse two, by which you are being saved, if you hold fast the word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. And then this great statement, for I delivered to you of us, of us as of first importance, what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, and that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. In other words, this is the testimony of the word of God. Look what Paul says. Then he goes into the eyewitnesses. That he appeared to Cephas. Who's Cephas? That's the apostle Peter. Then to the twelve. Verse six says. And you can underline these little phrases. It's interesting. In verse five, he appeared to Cephas. Verse six Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, in essence, again. And last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared to me also. What a great statement on the resurrection. Paul said, I delivered to you know, to you this of first importance that Christ died and that he was raised. In fact, look down in 1 Corinthians chapter um, five again. It says there in verse 17, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you're still in your sins. It's a great statement. And then he goes on in the epistles. 2 Corinthians 4.14 says, he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also. It's Paul. Paul said this in Galatians 1.1. He said he was an apostle of Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. And so here, believer, you just go from the gospel to the book of Acts to the epistles. They're preaching this. Paul said to the church at Ephesus in one twenty, when he, speaking of God, raised him from the dead. This is the message of the New Testament. Paul said in Colossians two twelve, God who raised him from the dead. And then if you go all the way to the end of the book of Revelation, you have Jesus Christ Himself in Revelation one one that I, He said, am the Alpha and the Omega says the Lord God who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty, and Jesus said, the living one. He said, I was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and of Hades. So again, the entire New Testament bears witness to the authenticity of the resurrection that our Lord was and is raised from the dead. In fact, I would just put it this way. The resurrection of Jesus Christ validates everything Jesus said and did. Apart from that, you couldn't validate it. But because it's, he did, it's validated. So here's the doctoral importance. Secondly, the biblical affirmations. But thirdly, just if I could just put it this way, one crucial truth to you regarding the resurrection. Okay, There's a lot that could be said here. But let me see if I can just focus in and zero our time in on one crucial truth. And it would be this, that by virtue of his resurrection, he is supremely in the scripture, the Lord of the universe. And I'm going to show you this. Because he was raised, he is Lord, giving him that title of God in the Old Testament. But he's Lord of the universe. Oftentimes when you look in the New Testament, you see his name, do you not? He's described by many different names, but often he's called the Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord being equated with his deity, if you will, Jesus, his human name, Christ that he fulfills that messianic title. But all of that, is substantiated by his resurrection from the dead. In other words, in his earthly life, there were number, numerous verifying evidences, miracles of his lordship, of his deity. However, I would say the supreme proof of his lordship is his resurrection from the dead. And let me just zero in here on just a few passages that demonstrate, if you will, the proof of his lordship, and demand a response from you. Look over just in your Bible in Romans. Let me just show you just a few passages here. Look over in Romans. It's not going to rain on us, is it? Look at that. I don't know. It's getting a little colder, which is good, I guess. Uh, Romans chapter 1, here at the beginning of Romans, when Paul is beginning to talk about the gospel of God in 1, 1, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel. There's the good news. Look at verse 3. Concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh. And then this phrase, who was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead a significant statement. Paul basically says that the resurrection is the defining element in the son's life and ministry, if you will. Before his resurrection, the son of God, did he not? He came in weakness. He came in lowliness. We would say that he came in humility. But through the resurrection, according to Paul, according to Paul in Romans 1, 4, he is declared to be the son of God in power. And then look at the last phrase in Romans 1, 4. It says there that he gives him that title, Jesus Christ, our Lord. It's because of the resurrection that he is identified as Lord. Look over in your Bible in Acts. Just back up just one second in Acts chapter two. Found this interesting. There he was declared that by virtue of his resurrection. But in Acts chapter 2, in verse 29, here, Peter is preaching. He says in 2.29 of Acts, Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he died and was buried, that his tomb is with us to this day, being therefore a prophet, knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption, but that Jesus, verse 32, God raised up and of which we are all witnesses. And then if you glance down to verse 36, based on that resurrection, Peter says, let all the house of Israel therefore know For certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. But I think it's interesting. Both in Romans 1, he's the Lord by his power over death. And here in Acts chapter 2, because of his resurrection, he's both Lord and Christ. Very significant, In other words, he is the one to whom all must give allegiance. One final passage. Would you look in the book of Philippians or maybe you don't have to turn there. Do you remember in Philippians where it says God highly exalted him because of his death. He highly exalted him, speaking of the resurrection, and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that the name of Jesus every knee should what? Bow in heaven and earth And under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is what? He's Lord. And so when you look at these passages, He is Lord to whom every creature in the universe will someday bow. Now that doesn't mean that all are saved. And even those who die in unbelief, we know that the scripture would say they will be forced to confess the lordship of Jesus Christ. But by virtue of His resurrection, He is Lord. So I just have two final questions for you tonight. Number one, what does it mean that Jesus Christ is Lord? Let me just be succinct here. To say that Jesus is Lord by virtue of his resurrection is to acknowledge a number of things, that he is almighty God, that he is creator of the world, that he is sustainer of the universe, Colossians chapter one. Scriptures declare Jesus To be God in the flesh. And as such, he is described as Lord. And what that means, that he is Lord, is this. That he has all dominion, all authority, all sovereignty, and all right. Here's the key. To rule your life. That's what that means. By virtue of his resurrection, he is Lord, you are not. By, by virtue of his resurrection, he's the one who has the right to rule your life. The, is that the case? This is the gospel. Second question is, what's your response then to Jesus Christ's resurrection from the dead? I mean, you can only really have one of three responses. And I'm thinking of Paul when he was in Acts 17 preaching. And he talked about the resurrection of the dead. And it said that some mocked him. Others said, we'll listen to you again. And then thirdly, it says that some joined him and believed. So here's my question for you tonight. What is your response to the resurrection and to the gospel? Maybe you've been coming for a few weeks and you're new and you're just thinking, what... How do I respond to Christ? How do I respond to God? How do I respond to my sin? How do I respond to his righteous life and his death and now his resurrection? Well, some mocked. Some said, I'm going to hear you again. And then some believed. And of course, that's my heart tonight that you would believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Listen to some of these statements in the scripture. It shall be, it says in Acts 2.21, that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. But you gotta call on the Lord. He's Lord. And, And your response needs to be one of belief. Remember in Romans 10, it says if you confess with your mouth Jesus as what? Lord. And believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead you shall be saved. So he's Lord and you've got to put your trust in him because of who he is. It says in the book of Acts in 1631, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. Let let me just say it this way to you. Jesus Christ, in the good news of the gospel, finally, if you will, once and for all, through his death and through his resurrection, has the power to take away all your sin, to take away all your guilt, to take away all your alienation from God. Jesus Christ, by virtue of his death, by virtue of his resurrection, made a way for you to go to heaven, made a way for you to receive, if you will, eternal glory. And the response, and it's really the only response of the Word of God, is you have to put your trust in Him. You have to believe in Him. You have to come to a point of faith, and I'd say at least recognize two things. Number one, that you are not Lord. He is, and you need to get under Him. And then secondly, you need to confess Him as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead. And so my question to you tonight is, is have you done that? I could just remember it as clear as day for me at 14. I, I, I went in, I got down on my bed, on my knees, and I didn't really know much to say other than I knew I was a sinner and I knew what Christ had died for me and I felt the convicting presence of the Holy Spirit bearing down on me, convicting of my sin. Listen, I was just undone at that moment. And so I went in, to my room and got down on my knees and I quoted Romans ten nine. I didn't know what else to say. If you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. So listen, he dealt with your guilt. He dealt with your sin. He dealt with your wrath that we heard of last week. And he gives you the hope of eternal life in the resurrection. Listen, this is the greatest news in all of the world, right? You have, if you know Christ tonight and have put your trust in him, you have the hope of eternal life, of forever being in the presence of God. Your sins removed, Christ's righteousness added unto you. And all of this is made possible by the resurrection. Listen to the words of Jesus Christ. I'm almost done. He said, one of my favorite scriptures, John 11:25. 25, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me shall live even if he dies. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. And Jesus said, and I'm going to ask you, he said, do you believe this? Listen, if your hope is in the Lord Jesus Christ, you will know life eternal. You will be reconnected to family that was in Christ that has gone before you. Jesus Christ, by the authority of his own resurrection, can grant you that wonderful place. He said in John 6, everyone who believes in the Son and believes in him will have eternal life. And Jesus said, I will raise him up on the last day. Listen, the virtue of his resurrection guarantees yours life with, ever re- with Christ eternally set free from death. If he was raised, we will be raised as well. Can, can you just picture that scene? Maybe it's going to be sooner for some of us than later. But can you imagine being in the glory of heaven, being in the presence of Christ? He will be in a resurrected body. You will be in a resurrected body, but forever, for all eternity, he's gonna be there with nails in his hands and in his feet as as a reminder to us of what he did for us. Listen, my question for you tonight is this. Have you put your trust in him? Have you believed in him? You know, Brent was real clear about the testimony of his family, but at some point, right, Had to be your faith, Brent. And it has to be your faith and the faith of your kids. I pray that that would be your heart tonight and your response to the gospel. If we can help you with that, we want to do that.